Writing well is the pursuit of a lifetime. You may be at mile marker one of this wonderful life journey and thinking for the first time about embracing the life of a writer. Or maybe you're further along and ready to publish some of your ideas. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are fellow travelers on this extended road trip to improve our writing and publish our ideas. We hope this podcast helps you make progress on your writing journey. Now, let's buckle up and write. Saying yes to your writing life is a constant struggle for most writers, especially those who are trying to write in what we call the seams of life. There's always something else tugging for our attention and time, kids' activities, housework, work, time with friends, church volunteer activities, sofa Netflix time. The everyday stuff crowds out what we say is most important to our soul. Today, Dave and I are going to talk about why the struggle exists by framing writing as sacred. It's the opposite of secular, the everyday stuff. We hope that the framework helps you reprioritize your writing life. But before we dig into the topic, we're going to talk about where we've made progress. Dave, you and I have not done a podcast just us together in a really long time. So we haven't talked about where we've made progress. So I'm expecting you've made a ton of progress in the past couple months. So where have you made progress? This is a little bit funny. So I have made progress in convincing my 14-year-old to take up lacrosse in high school. So I was an addicted parent to kids sports. My kids, my two boy, older two boys played, you know, were wrestlers, football players, lacrosse players, baseball players, and then in high school. And then Christian played football in college and Corey played lacrosse in, in, in college. So this is the first year without any lacrosse or anything. So Jay had taken up and done some training camps a couple of years ago, but then COVID hit. And so I've been trying to slowly convince her to go into lacrosse. And I think I did it. So she's, she's signed up for freshman lacrosse at Wheaton North. And so I couldn't be more happy in my life. I feel like I've made huge progress. How did you convince her? What, was, what did the convincing look like? So convincing is the slow drip. So I take her to school every day. I, and, and in the fall, I said, hey, in the spring, there's girls lacrosse. And if you're going to do it, and I'm not saying you should do it. I would always say that. I'm not saying you should. But if you, sh- if you want to... You need to do it all four years and, and you would need to start your freshman year. So then I, I take her to school. And so in January, I would say, to, you know, this last month, I said, hey, it's coming up, signups coming up. I'd love for you to do it. Don't do it for me because, you know, you're the one who has to go to practices, but I would love for you to do it. But again, don't do it for me. <laughs> so and I suddenly she awakened and now I, w- I came home last night and she was in the dark working on her look her she has a lacrosse stick and because she has some of the gear right because she's done some of the camps and she was out there it was dark she said dad can you can you play with me i'm like it's cold and it's dark so i thought oh i gotta go out there and do it so i played with her about five minutes until we lost the balls in the dark we couldn't find them so she owned it that's fantastic when totally. is the first when is the first came and how cold do you predict you will be during the it first will be season? cold lacrosse in the spring is <laughs> practice actually starts march 1st first game is i think the 15th or something so 
Anyway, I get to, it's so much joy as a parent, this vicarious joy. I just love it. And it yeah. doesn't, she doesn't have to be the best. Who cares? You're just going to something. It's how you manage meaning in your life. So I'm, I'm so excited. Anyway, enough of me. How about you? Well, I, I hope she makes some friends through it too, right? That's yes. the great, the great benefit Absolutely. of being on any sort of team is the relationship. So I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing more about Jalen's lacrosse career, high school lacrosse career. So my progress. So I got my website up and running with the help of my niece and I, which is a major, major, major thing because I've had a Squarespace account for five years, I think. It's been a really long time for five years and I haven't done anything with it. I'd go in and I would get overwhelmed. I'm like, yeah, I'll do it another time. And so I decided to finally do it. And my niece said, so what's our goal for, you know, launch? We got to set a goal. I'm like, oh, okay, by the end of February. And so I had a goal of getting three blog posts up by the end of February. And I have two written. I've done it two weeks ago. And that's my goal is to do one a week. And if I slip in another one, then I do. But I figure one a week is good. And they end up taking a long time because they're a little bit more long form than they are short form. I hope maybe to squeeze in some short form ones that don't take up enough time. But I'm using lots of images to to help explain my ideas. And so you have to take pictures and then you have to create something that's readable and since my website is about me being a writer, I figured that my writing actually has to be good. So, you know, I'm putting a lot of thought into my actual writing. So anyway, that's progress. One, you've been talking about this for years, but I think you should tell the audience for people who don't know what your website is about. Talk about McGillicuddy and your vintage dealership. My website is McGillicuddy.com and McGillicuddy is the name under which I sell vintage goods at a store in the Chicagoland area. I did a lot of vintage selling at flea markets and antique shows over the past 10 years and then moved to brick and mortar in the past few years. So it's my business name and it's also kind of my brand name overall, right, that I use on Instagram, which is where I have a a pretty loyal following and I talk about lots of different things because that's who I am. I like to write about different observations in life, but most of it revolves around living with vintage, collecting vintage, what it means to be a dealer, decorating. I throw in some flower arranging and stuff like that. So anyway, it's my passion and it's and it's fun. And people have been asking all sorts of questions throughout the years. And I'm like, oh, I can't really do that in an Instagram post. I really need a blog to explain some of these things. So that, that is, that to me is like the, the biggest progress you've made over the last few years as we've done this podcast. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, that it really helps to have somebody just help you, right? I was so stuck and I couldn't do it on my own. And I'd ask my son to help me on numerous occasions because I knew that he could do it. And I'm like, okay, he's not going to help me, but I know I won't do it on my own because I get stuck too easily and too frustrated. So having my niece on board, was very, very helpful. (laughs) That's so awesome. All right. Well, we have a great episode ahead of us, Dave. Let's talk about how this idea of writing as sacred was born. 
we were doing a workshop on rituals and we started to think about rituals in terms of sacred sacred rituals and sacred activities. So that's really kind of the background that got us starting to think about writing as sacred. Actually, it was that quote that you found from Toni Morrison, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, where she was in the Parish Review and she talked about the word, she used the word non-secular as this perfect time. We'll talk about that in a second. But that got me thinking about this whole idea of in the world, if you've been part of church or the religious tradition, there's always been people who live in the world, the real world, like you and me, we have jobs. And then there was this special order of people that were priests and nuns that were set aside. They were set apart. They were to do non-secular work, right? Quote, unquote, God's work or holy work. And so there were spiritual people, and then there are the rest of us, right? The hoi polloi. <laughs> the real word is secular. You know, these religious peoples, monks, priests, and pastors, they're non-secular or sacred or holy or, as I said, set apart. So the word sacred, though, really means to be set apart, right? And so I'll, I'll do this quote here, and you're the one who found this, which I'll read it and take credit for it. But she says, I always get up and make a cup of coffee while it is dark. It must be dark. And then I drink the coffee and watch the light come. And I realize that for me, this ritual comprises my preparation to enter a space that I can only call non-secular. I love that because she's bifurcating or dividing up the secular from the non-secular, right? She's she's recognizing that there's all this part of her life that competes for this non-secular component of her life, which is writing, which she's devoted her life to because she's a prolific writer and that's what she does for a living. But even us as writers who are stitching it in the seams of our life because we have other jobs on top of everything we're doing, there is this sense that we have to move, we have to transition from the secular to the non-secular. So I, I love how she divided it up. I thought it was a really helpful framework. So I was thinking about how people typically use the word sacred to define writing. And it often has to do with what a writer is creating and not the actual act of creating or the act of creation. So you think of like confessional writing, this often falls into the paradigm of sacred writing because you're you're digging into this these deep parts of your soul that you want to get out on paper. And it's usually kind of like that that writing is healing type work that that we think of as sacred, or it's writing as meditative. This is often the category that sacred writing fills. And Really, I, that is true. I do not disagree with that because writing is a spiritual act because of the soul work you're doing. And it's often hard work. You're digging into the depths of things that maybe have been hidden or that you can't put words to. And you want to uncover those deeper truths because you want to understand them for yourself and perhaps even pass them on to the world. I would imagine that that's a lot of what memoir writing is for. And that, in a sense, is very sacred. So it's totally fine to use that that framework. But I think when we're talking about writing as sacred, it's more about the act of writing being sacred, yes. not what's being written. So 
you think about it because there are so many books that aren't confessional or meditative or writing as healing, right? Like you think of all the nonfiction trade books that are out there or list books, you know, most people probably wouldn't quantify that as as soul work, right? Even though right, it comes right, from, right, right, right. from a deep space inside of you, it's not it's not quite the same thing. But setting aside time to write is different than the time that you do everything else in your right. And therefore it is sacred. It is different. So anyway, we're talking more about the time that you set aside as sacred rather than the actual work that you're doing, the actual writing that's coming out of the time that you separate. We're really talking about time, really, as a breaking up your life into kind of types of time, sacred time and secular time. And I, I love what you said about there is so much therapy and confessional writing. And again, it has its place. And there probably is the emotion and feeling that that is sacred and holy and religious people who are trying to convert people with their writing, of course, they're always, that feels holy to them. But I love this idea that it, it, it's the act of writing and not just the content of the writing. And I think that's a really important framework as we move forward in this episode. And as you think about your life, Toni Morrison quote was just so powerful that she talked about that time, that the act and the time as being non-secular. So we already talked about this a little bit in the intro and we've been touching on it, but let's just go into what sacred isn't <laughs> or what sacred is by defining its opposite. So sacred is the opposite of secular. We've already touched on that and We've already said that secular is the everyday stuff. It's the grind. It's what we do. It's having to make dinner for the kids or your family. Oh, I hate that. <laughs> it's what you have to do the homework with your kids after school. It's going to meetings. It's yeah. cleaning out the car. It's mowing the lawn. It's doing your bills. It's, I mean, it's even going to church, right? That could be. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So. What would you put in that category, Dave? Anything I missed? Like what in your life is the secular that often competes for the sacred act of writing? So in my earlier years, I would probably going to all the wrestling matches that I had to go to, all the football games. I realize now how much I enjoyed that. But it's part of the grind, like picking the kids up from school, taking them home. And it's attending to the needs of your spouse, meaning the lawn mowing, fixing stuff, painting. There's just so much in life that, in addition to our work, crowds out what we're calling the sacred, right? Which is this time that we set aside for the act of writing. And I think we were talking about this yesterday, Dave. Think about the other things that are sacred in your life and how those things make you feel. So like for you, you fly fishing, right? For me, it may be getting out my camera and taking pictures or arranging flowers, but that's not something that I often have time for in my everyday life. And I have to, to carve it out and say, this is important to me, even if it feels a little bit frivolous, but because it gives me life, because it's, it's something, it's something important to me, I'm, I'm going to do it. So in some ways you got to think about 
the freedom and liberation that comes from that very sacred activity. You're freeing yourself from the grind, right? So I don't know if you can talk about that in your own life, Dave. I was just thinking as you were talking, it really has to do with, the secular really has to do with utility, where we exchange time for money or time for progress. And so it's very utility based, you know, I have to work, I got to do the chores, got to pick up the kids, I got to, you know, and so fly fishing is like that for me where it's not utility, it's, it's sacred. So when I'm on the river, I can't think of anything else. If you've ever fly fished, you know this. The moment you start casting that tiny little fly into the water and trying to solve the problem of where are the trout? How do I catch the trout? How do I get this tiny little fly in front of the trout so they hit it? It is sacred. So I consider my time like fly fishing. I consider that in the bucket of sacred as well. I was thinking that word utility is so good, Dave. It's so rich because it means that we are framing things in our world as if it has use to us or use of others and to others. And so many times we think that our writing, especially the pre-publication phase, right, when it's not out in the world and we're sitting, setting aside time to write, it can seem really selfish and it doesn't have any use to the world, right? And so we, we tend to devalue it. And also those people around us might devalue it because it's not serving them. They're wondering, what are you doing with your time? You know, this seems like a complete and utter waste because it's of no use to me. And how is it really of use to you? Right. So I love that word utility. I think it's really helpful in, in helping us understand the struggle to write and the, the struggle of entering into the sacred. I just think that everything flows to utility. All our time, everything is about management. If you look at all the books on business, it's about, you know, everybody knows that time is the most important thing because you have limited amounts of it. I remember a mentor that always used to say that people think that the phrase was, you always have to manage your scarcest resource in life. So when you're younger, it's money. For many people, you know, you got college, you school, you got debt, you got this and that. As you get older, you start to accumulate a few things and maybe you, you make more money, but then you're older. And so at that point, you have to manage your scarcest asset, which is time, which is you don't have unlimited time. And so you only know that when you're older. And, and so you always have to manage your scarcest asset. And I would say if you're a writer, your scarcest asset is always time. That's so good, Dave. And I think that because we, we frame the greatest asset in our culture is wealth in many ways, right? Yes. Yes. And so if we're not producing something that leads us to wealth and preserving that precious asset, then, or if it's taking away from time, which is our precious asset that others perceive we should be spending with them, then it's, it's a bad thing, right? So writing is a bad thing. So that is, that's really insightful. I was thinking also about how these sacred acts that we do for ourselves, you, Dave, on the river, me, flower arranging or photography, it, it, there's a component of disciplining yourself to, to do it, right? Even when you don't feel like doing it and carving out time and saying, I want to do this because it is life-giving, because it is important to me. Because if you don't, then you don't do it, right? I'm, I think recently you you saw the weather forecast was going to be pretty 
good for a February day and you decided to take the day off and go go fishing and you had to sacrifice some things, right? You had yeah. to set apart that time, right? And put away the utility meetings. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) So there's a discipline and there's a sacrifice. There's a sacrifice of the utility, right? I think that that's, it's very helpful for me, that idea of utility and why we struggle so much with the sacred. The act of writing, you're sitting down is a sacred act because you're, you're taking time out to do something that has no utility to it, arguably. And I think that people in your life will be screaming at you, most likely, that they don't see it as important. And they do this in different ways, right? It happens easily just because things crowd that out. And so if you have a choice between going to your daughter's lacrosse game or, and setting aside time to write, if there's conflict, what goes? Always the writing goes, right? Because there's this sense, well, my kids are most important. And so my mom, she is 88 right now. She's alive. And she wrote, I think, two or three books after she was 60. And she said that her 60s and 70s were her most productive years. She was postmenopausal, of course, no kids hanging at her skirt. She was done working for my father. She worked with my father and his organization for many, many years. So she was, she was done, in a sense, working for the man. And so she did gardening and she wrote books. Those were the two things that she did. But she wasn't able to do that until after she retired. And a lot of people aren't able to do that. So I think what we're talking about is really hard, which is what you said earlier, which is creating sacred space for writing in the seams of your life. Back to the utility thing. Often we show up for writing and we don't accomplish anything as far as like actually words on paper, words on screen, right? And so it can feel like, oh, I showed up for my writing, but I don't have anything to to produce to show that I, I showed up for my writing. And so again, it goes back to that. We're so end product, end result, how is this useful, focused that that we think if we're not actually going to produce something, then I'm not going to show up. And there's frankly times when we are writing in a writing or in a writing project, and we're still sorting through the ideas and showing up for your writing life, setting a time, sacred time for your writing life may not look like putting words on paper, right? It, Ooh, may, be you, it may be you thinking through ideas. It may be you going to even a museum because there's an exhibit that will help you understand maybe something in your novel that you want to write about or something in your nonfiction book that you want to write about. It's maybe taking a meditative walk and taking care of your soul. We just recently did an interview with Roseanne Bain, who wrote Around the Writer's Block, and she talks about these different phases of the creative process and how there's this there's this incubation period where you're not really productive in terms of putting words down on paper, but it's just as important. It's 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 just as sacred an act when you show up and you do those incubation activities. So I I just want to encourage people that when you show up for writing and you say, I'm gonna set aside this sacred time to write and you don't write, don't dismiss that time as sacred because just showing up you are and doing something related to your writing, even if it's just looking at the staring at the ceiling, Roseanne said, you're 
and asking what do I really want to say? That's that that is productive, even if it's not productive in the terms of having something on paper. When you were talking, I just thought there's this gravitational pull to the secular secular in our lives, not just that things crowded out, but even in the act of writing that we have this utility mindset, which is I've got to produce. So I love this idea of the long meditative walk, the visit to the museum, even the tediousness of research. So right now I'm working on a project and I, it'll be a while before this, this comes out, but my friend and I are doing a book on, uh, we did a book on fly fishing called the fly fishers book of lists. Life is short, catch more fish. We're going to do one on fly fishing proverbs. So what we're doing is identifying from some of the famous fly fishers throughout the years, probably the last hundred years, maybe 80 years, and identifying some of their quips and some of their sayings and then writing short essays on them. And mine will probably be light, more light and fun, not serious, but more kind of uh, sassy. So part of the research, part of the sacred work is to sort through hundreds and hundreds, well, actually identifying these proverbs. That's a big chunk. That's a lot of work that happens before I can even start writing one word. And so that's sacred. And so it doesn't feel sacred. It feels really utility, utilitarian in some ways. But setting aside time to do that act of research it is a holy act. It's a, it's a sacred act. I love this idea of when you call it sacred, when you call the setting apart your writing life, when you call it sacred, you're lifting it up in importance and you're, you're making it a priority. And I think there's something really profound that happens when you start naming something when, because the default is, oh, I'm just going to go write. And anytime you put just in front of something, you're minimizing it, right? Rather than I'm showing up for my sacred time, this is important to me, right? So I think there's something really powerful in calling it sacred. And I would challenge our listeners, that's probably the first step is to identify your writing time as sacred, name it as that, not to to label it as something flippant and everyday or something that can be just tossed aside because it isn't sacred. And, and I think the reason for that is that nobody is going to do that for us, right? Nobody's going to give you sacred space. So, and you really have to understand this. If you've got a couple kids afoot or you're in a real busy stretch with work, no one's coming to save you. If you're waiting for someone to bless you and say, oh my God, we, I just support you so much. Forget it. It's not happening. You have to own that. And, and I do think that's an important thing that only you can create something sacred in your own life. Nobody's going to say when they're asking you, can you go do this? Nobody's going to say, oh, but isn't that your sacred time? <laughs> <laughs> that's that so true. Time? No. I mean, maybe you could actually start to train people by by showing up regularly to your sacred time. Like, oh, this is mom's sacred time. But Nobody's going to like remember that, right? No. And so you have to protect that because most everyone wants to not drag you down, but they want to pull you into their, into their everyday because you're a delightful person and life is better with you and you make things better for people, right? Just by what you do for them and your presence, right? So it's not necessarily they want to drag you down and take you away from your writing because they're malicious and mean hearted and they don't believe in you. Sometimes that's the case, but often it's they just 
they just want you and they they don't see the importance of what you're doing. Yeah. Only, so really, only you can save you, right? <laughs> right. Nobody else is going to do Nobody it. Nobody else is coming <laughs> to save you. That's right. And, and I do believe that people will begin to honor your time as you begin to show up to it. I do believe that there's a training that happens with yourself. And as you do it, it, it influences and it shapes how other people respond to you. So it, it is it does have a ripple effect. So my wife is a complete introvert and she's a nurse and she works all day in the school district as a nurse. She comes home and she needs about two hours alone because she has been just pestered all day with little kids, anxious moms, overbearing principals and school district staff. So I've learned through the years when I walk through the door after when I come home, she doesn't want to talk, right? She doesn't want to engage. She's not mad. She's not upset with me. She's not passive aggressive. She just needs her alone time. Took me a long, many years <laughs> before I could honor that as sacred for her. And so I just think that's the job. If you want to write and you want to create sacred space, part of it is you have to train other people that this is sacred. And when I'm, when I'm doing this, it's not okay to interrupt me. So what other way that you can begin to reframe your mindset, mindset as writing as a ritual is to do what Toni Morrison does to kind of frame her, her transition from the secular to the non-secular, and that is to create writing rituals. And we recently did a live event on writing rituals, which I mentioned at the start of this episode. And I think about rituals like in, in religious settings, right? They're done repetitively. And that's really, I think, the key to rituals with writing is the repetition of them. And so but the more repetitive you are with doing the same thing, the, maybe it's waking up at the same time as much as possible to, to show up to your, your sacred time. Maybe it's going for a meditative walk. But the, the, the more that you do the same thing repetitively and the same thing over and over again, I think the more that you'll you'll train yourself to enter into those sacred spaces of writing. I think you have to play around with what works. Yeah. I have found in recent years, I found this podcast that I really like. comes out once a week on Friday. Sometimes it's not released until Saturday morning. And so I do two things. I get up. I usually get up before my wife. And I sit on the couch, listen to the podcast, and then read. So often my from seven to say 10 o'clock, 1030 on a Saturday morning, now that I don't have to get up for wrestling matches and football games. And although now I, I'm lacrosse, now I'll be <laughs> lacrosse. But in recent years, I've been able to do that. So that has become in a sense, a sacred space. And so that's an example of a ritual that has happened for me. I do this and I look forward to it that I get up, get the dogs fed, get coffee, sit down, turn on the podcast. It's about an, you know, sometimes an hour, hour and a half, and then read. And, and the reading that I do is often these historical biographies, well, this biography of Catherine the Great. That's when I sit down and read that book. And I don't know, it, it becomes a ritual. So I love the idea of rituals. And I think if you're not in a place in life, let's say your kids are still afoot, you have to, you have to play around with the kind of ritual that works with your specific situation. I'll also mention that if you think about rituals in religious settings, they're often 
they're often tied to the senses, right? You see candles being lit. That's a that's a visual cue. You smell incense. That's a that's a, a sensory cue also. Or you take communion in the Christian um, realm. You're tasting something, right? And yeah. so rituals are very sensory focused. And when we were preparing for this ritual workshop. The big takeaway is that the more sensual or sensory the ritual, the more that you'll be triggered to enter into that secular space. So the ritual is, it's really good if you can think of rituals in terms of, of what can, what, what triggers you, your senses to, that's a positive, something that's positive. So you'll associate writing with something positive, you know, it's maybe it's a special kind of coffee. It's not your everyday coffee, but something that you only do when you're going to enter into that secular realm of writing. Or maybe it's something that you smell, you light a certain candle every time you sit down, or maybe it's something you touch. And I don't know, maybe it's a rock or something, a rock that you picked up and you you touch it and it signals to you. So the whole idea is that you're associating something positive and sensory with your writing, and that can help you transition into a sacred, non-secular space. What you said about it, it does need to be a little bit different. So, for example, if you drink coffee, and let's say you do K-cups, but, if you're, but when you drink coffee for your writing, maybe you slow down and actually brew a pot of coffee, because that becomes associated with the ritual of writing. And I right. think that's what you were saying is doing something unique to the ritual. And I really like that a lot so that it's not, it's it, that there's enough difference that it's not simply, okay, I'm going to throw on, you know, cake up and, and now I'm going to start writing. It's slowing down to actually experience that sacred space. Roseanne Bain, who wrote around the writer's block and has done lots of studies into rituals and writer's block and all that. And she's in a previous episode, so you can go listen to that. But she talks about how you have these neurological sensory experiences when you smell something and then if and it's a positive experience, and then you go immediately to to writing. Soon enough, the the neurons that fire when you're smelling that coffee and the neurons that fire when you write are gonna hook up, right? They're gonna wire up and suddenly you're gonna associate writing with this really positive thing. So there's some neurology behind it, which is really, really fun. And I think we need to just say that to create sacred means probably to create rituals and start small and don't try to overdo it, but maybe start with one specific, maybe as you say, it's lighting a candle or it's sitting at the table. When I wrote Death by Suburb and I had a deadline, sometimes when you have a deadline that that creates ritual, but I would sit at the end of the table in the dining room, and that's where I sat, and every night I'd write from 9 to 12. So that became a ritual for me to get the book done. I think the hard thing, I'm just going to say this as we wind this down, I do think the hard thing is when you don't have a deadline, let's say you don't have a, a book contract, you're going to self-publish, or you don't really know where your writing is going to go. You don't. And that's where this utility, this gravitational pull to everything has to be utility starts to kind of, we struggle to actually create sacred space because we don't have the utility of a deadline. Does that make sense? Or we don't know the full direction of our writing. And I think the big challenge, I want to challenge those of you who are writing and you don't know what you're writing yet, 
is to encourage you to honor that sacred space because over time, these good things happen, right? They just do as you discipline yourself and carve out that sacred space. These conversations are always so helpful for me as a writer as well. They're, they're challenging to me because you can't go on a podcast and talk about this stuff without, you know, turning inward and reflecting on your own ways that the sacred is is pushed out, the sacred act of writing is pushed out. So I hope people get back to us and let us know how they are trying to reframe their writing life as sacred. All right, Dave, let's turn to our words of the episode. I love this little segment because we get to show off or talk about words that we've learned since we last met. And when you're reading a lot, you always find words that you don't know. I think you mentioned yesterday that it feels like you're coming across a lot of words that you don't know lately. So you should have a lot for the next few episodes. But this one popped up of of all places, Instagram. For some reason, there was some real audio that was popping up and everybody was doing a little video to illustrate the word that I'm going to use. And the word is apricity and it's the warmth of the sun on a winter day. So you can imagine all these influencers on Instagram going outside in their cute little ski caps and you know, eyes closed, looking up at the sun on their face, you know, the apricity of the day. It's it's cold, but I have the sun bathing me. So anyway, here's a here's a sentence. I'm a little bit jaded by Instagram influencers. Anyway, I took a walk despite it being only 15 degrees. I chased the apricity so rare on a January day. I love the word. It's a great word. I, I don't think I've ever heard of it before. Let's thank Instagram in this moment. There's not much we can thank Instagram for, but we will thank Instagram for introducing me to this word. All right, Dave, what's your word of the episode? So so what my word is sinusure. C-Y-N-O-S-U-R-E, sinusure. And it's a person or thing that is the center of attention or admiration. So you might say Taylor Swift or Rihanna is the sinusure of today's younger generation. Or... Our two-year-old is the sinusure of our family right now. Ooh, good news. You know, <laughs> so sinusure, C-Y-N-O-S-U-R-E. I saw the word, thought, I do not know what that word means. You know, I've heard it used before, and I think at one point I probably looked it up and knew what it meant, but it's one of those, if you don't use it, you'll lose it, right? Yep. So, or you just have to read it multiple times. Was it in the history book that you were reading, yeah. or what did you come across it? Was it? Yeah, sinusure was in... The Catherine the Great book. Yeah. That seems like something that might be in a book about a queen. So there's four books in the series that Robert Massey wrote. He wrote that he won the Pulitzer for Peter the Great. But the next one I really want to read is on right at the where the Romana family, which is part of this 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 these books from Russia, the Empress Saint Catherine the Great was from 1761 or 1762 to 1796. But then the Bolshevik revolution in 1917 overturned the Romanovs, right? And ended that century's dynasty. It was a monarchy of really is what is a monarchy. And so anyway, so the next book I'm going to read is, is kind of those years when the Romanovs were actually taken over and the, they were so corrupt. Oh my gosh, they were so corrupt. Anyway, so I, I'm just loving the history side of things. So that's one type of book that I'm reading, but I'm sure I got the word sinusure from that book. Maybe they'll make a juicy Netflix series out of it. Oh, it would. Yes. 
Well, that is the end of a great episode. I think that's a wrap. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write. Mm-hmm.